This is the ministry from Sovereign Grace Reformed Church in Tiverton, Devon, United Kingdom. It's been a very short reading and reading what we've had numerous times in this series. Just the first three verses of Genesis 12. We'll read this and then I'll explain what we're going to come Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And these shall all families of the earth be blessed. That is the introduction and the first <coughs> reading that we have of the what's called the Abrahamic Covenant, the Covenant with Abraham, which we've recently been studying. Um, and this evening I want to concentrate more on the rest of Genesis, the patriarchal period, um, thinking about really verses uh, chapters twelve to to fifteen, obviously. Let me just give a flavour of, of, of what God is, is really revealing through in relation to his redemptive plan in the rest of Genesis. Last time we considered the content or the actual promises of the Abrahamic covenant, and previous to that we had a new, quite a few evenings, I don't know how many, um, where we we're thinking about the character or the nature of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, but the obvious question that springs to mind is, well, if God has, if God has revealed the character of the covenant, and he's revealed the content of the covenant, um, when do these promises begin to be fulfilled? And now, that's really the question that I want to concentrate on tonight. The fulfilment of these promises. Now, one thing I have to say, and I've had to, I've mentioned this numerous times, and it's an important point, that when we talk about the fulfilment of the promises, not only of the Abrahamic covenant, but of, of, of other promises in the Old Testament, they are always fulfilled in, 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 at two levels. There's a literal, a physical fulfillment, and then there's always a more spiritual, or even sometimes a cosmic fulfillment, um, which is often how the New Testament takes up these Old Testament promises. So I'll just give you one example of that. So if we take the promise of the land, which we've just read here in, in Chapter 12 is promised them that they will, that a, land, a land that I will show thee. So let's think just about the land. We take the promise of the land of Canaan that God promised. Um, the first level of fulfillment in respect of the land is a real land, a physical land, um, a geographical promise of a territory bounded by on the north 
east by the river Euphrates and on the southwest by the river of Egypt, if you read in chapter 15, verse 18. So you can measure this map, you can, it's got a geography, it's a real, literal fulfillment of a land promise. So that's one level of this fulfillment. But we know from the New Testament, and even actually from later on in the Old Testament, that that is not the only way this promise is fulfilled. It's fulfilled at a higher, at a more spiritual, and indeed cosmic level. So when we come to the New Testament, it seems to completely ignore or bypass the physical aspect of this promise and it launches straight onto the second level of fulfilment and emphasizes uh, the eschatological hope of the new heavens and the new earth, really saying that the land of Canaan, this land promise, was a type of the new heavens and the new earth that will be ushered in um, at the second coming of Christ. Different Christians have different ways of, uh, of, of um, saying when all these things will be sequenced, but we all agree that there will, in the end, be a new heaven and a new earth. And the New Testament says that this Abrahamic promise of land um, was, is fulfilled in its, in its fullest sense in the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, and we read of, of this, of course, in Hebrews 11, verse 10 and verse 16, where it says the object of Abraham's faith in the promise of the land was not earthly ground, but a better, a heavenly country, the city of God, the new creation. So the fulfillment of these promises to Abraham are always fulfilled on these two levels, literal, physical, and also this higher, sometimes spiritual. And when we say spiritual, it doesn't mean to say it's not real. It's still literal, but not. it's got a, a more heavenly fulfillment, shall we say. So let's thinking, thinking then about the rest of Genesis. What do we discover in relation to the fulfillment of these promises to Abraham? Well, the first thing to say is that there is little or no record in the rest, of, in, the, in the patriarchal period, that is up to when Moses comes on the scene. There's, no, there's very little evidence of any fulfillment of the earthly or physical aspect of the covenant promises. This only seems to get underway when Moses arrives. Um, and which we read, of course, in Exodus to Deuteronomy. On the other hand, we do see progress in the spiritual um, um, fulfillment of the covenant promises, but little or no um, fulfillment of the, of the physical um, first level, I call it, um, covenant promises. There's no theocratic reign of the kingdom of God. We only see that later when we 
when the kingdom of Israel is created as they are delivered out of Egypt um, and when they enter Canaan. But under the patriarchs, under Isaac, um, Jacob, Joseph, um, we don't see this, the fulfilment of this promise of land. For example, we don't we see very little evidence. Well, we certainly don't see the full um, delivery of the promise of other people. Certainly not of the Messiah, the King. Um, and this is what I think makes this section of Scripture chapter 12 to chapter 15, the patriarchal period, so helpful to us as Christians. Because in many ways, they, are li- they were living in the same spiritual reality as we do in the church today. They were a people living in anticipation of the fulfillment of the promises. They, they had not received the promises. The promises were yet to come. Um, like us, they were living in a two-age reality. The land had been promised, even described. The promise of a king had been made, but he had not yet come. The, there was a promise of a great people gathered and ruling and reigning over their enemies. But that hadn't come. None of these things had been fulfilled. They were all in the future. And yet the very, the very reality of those promises and the, and the hope that they gave, the eschatological hope, resulted in, in a present transformation of God's people, certainly amongst the patriarchs, as our brother Leah has shown in his series. And as the Apostle John says in his epistle, uh, thinking of the second coming, Arhem, um, every man that hath this hope in him, purifieth himself. We may not have received the promises, but the anticipation of the promise, the faith that we put in the promise, the, the fact that the promise will be fulfilled as a present effect upon the believer, and we purify ourselves. We are is part of the the. Um, energy, the fuel, if you like that, in sanctification. That's one of the uh, things that drives us to be holy, is that we know our Saviour, our King, is coming. We know that we will be in a land, a land that will be eternal, a city, a new city, a city of God, the eternal state. And that's the situation that that we face in this patriarchal period. The people of God in this period were pilgrims. The people of God in Canaan were not pilgrims. They were possessors. They were in the land. But the believers under the patriarchal period, they were pilgrims in anticipation of a hope, of a promise, not yet fulfilled. And that's the situation that we are in. That's why this period is so instructive for us spiritually speaking. Um, 
Abraham, Isaac and Jacob by faith, the Bible says, sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country dwelling in tents or tabernacles as heirs of the same promise. Well, that, that's a very different life than the people of Israel when they were in the kingdom of Israel. They, they were not living in tents. They were not strangers. Um, but under the patriarchs, the people were pilgrims. Mm -hmm. A time would come when the people of God would not be strangers in the land. It would be their land. They would not dwell in tents, they would dwell in towns and cities. That's why when you get to the book of Numbers, it may be a bit hard work in places, but when you read about all the allocation of the, of the towns, saying this tribe gets this town and this tribe gets this area, rejoice because God, because this, this is the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled at that first physical, literal level. Literally, the people of God are entering in to the land that was promised. And it's their land. They're no longer dwelling in tents, no longer sojourners, but they are in their towns and cities. But that time is not yet in the time of the patriarchs. Like us, the church here on earth and the redeemed souls in heaven, we must remember that, we together, the church here, uh, militant and the church in heaven, triumphant, are both anticipating and waiting for the fulfilment of the land promise at the higher level, the new heavens and the new earth the final inheritance of the true land of Canaan. We are, we are all one church waiting. Heaven is not our home. Heaven, the new heaven and the new earth is our final home. And we all are anticipation of the final fulfilment of the Abrahamic promise. So that's why I think this period is, is helpful to us. Because they, they, they are, spiritually speaking, they're in, we're in a very similar situation to them. So, I can only give you a flavour of what happens, um, redemptively speaking, in the rest of Genesis. But if we think of, of the covenant promises made to Abraham, the, the promise of, of, of a king, a messiah, the promise of, of a... Of, of a people so large that they were uncountable, as, as many as the stars in the sky and the promise of land, those were the three promise, promises the promise of a, um, you know, thinking about those promises what do, we, what do we discover in the rest of Genesis well the promise of a great nation, of these numerous descendants, numberless, as I say, as the stars. Well, that was very much a struggle. That was impeded by the barrenness of the patriarchs' wives, as well as other barrenness. So that didn't go smoothly. 
They didn't go quickly, did they? Um, during the centuries covered by Genesis 12 to chapter 50, Abraham's family had developed into 12 tribes. A 12 tribe people. But a 12 tribe people, and the, the, um, the numbers of the people in those tribes are, are, are recorded, is nowhere near the scale of the promised size of the nation that was promised um, to Abraham and that would, which would come in the future. The fulfilment of the, of the promise of land was about as slow as it was possible to get. It was snail's pace. Um, in chapter 13 and verse 17, we read of how God told Abraham to stake out the land by um, walking through the land, walking through the length of it and the breadth of it. It was a, it was a land claim, so it was a thing that was done in, in those days to, to stake a claim to the land and walk up and down it. And God said, walk up and down the land that I have, I have promised you. You're now a, a pilgrim in the land, but one day you, a people will come from you who will possess this land. And God told Abraham to walk up and down. This was to be a statement of faith. But at the end of that very long walk, Abraham did not own any of that land. He was still an alien. He was a resident, but he was an alien um, in the land. And like you and I, he had to exercise faith in the promise. God had promised this land. He said, walk up and down it. It will be yours one day, or your people's one day. But he didn't possess it. He had to exercise faith in the promise of God. Subsequently, some small pieces of land were purchased. In chapter 23, we read of how Abraham secured the field of Machpelah with its burial field from a guy called Ephron the Hittite. And in chapter 33, verse 19, Jacob bought a plot of ground at Shechem from the sons of Haman. So Abraham bought, and Jacob bought, these properties, these plots of land, um, and they served as a kind of earnest of the inheritance, a kind of deposit, a kind of guarantee of that which would come in the future. And what the idea here was that, that the patriarchs were buying these plots of ground and the people of God were to look at these plots of ground and to exercise faith in saying, one day, not just this part of Canaan will be ours, but the whole of Canaan will be ours. And these plots of ground were earned, were um, an earnest of the inheritance yet to come. And we see this faith exercised in, in the return of the body of Jacob for burial in the cave of Machpelah in chapter 50 and verses 12 and 13. Faith testified to the expectation of the exodus of all of Israel 
and their eventual occupation of the land in its fullness. But what's that got to do with us, you might be thinking? Well, you know, there's a, there's, there's a direct equivalence for us. You see, we as Christians, in a similar way, are living in hope of the full possession of the eternal inheritance. But it's not here, we haven't got it yet. There's so much more to come. We are awaiting the fulfilment of the, of the promises, or the full fulfilment of the promises. We're this side of it. But God has given us an earnest of our inheritance as well. He's given us something in the now which guarantees the then. Which he's given us something now which guarantees that what will come, what is being promised in the future, will come. And this is, of course, the Holy Spirit who guarantees the full possession of the inheritance of the Christian. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, he first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, and this is it here, which is the earnest of our inheritance, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So as the patriarchal people of God were to view the fields of, of Machpelah and the Grand at Shechem as guarantees of the full inheritance of Canaan, the Christian is to view the possession of the Holy Spirit in the church and indeed in his or her own body as the guarantee, as the down payment of the fullness to come. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? If you if you are a Christian, you you are you are um, a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. We, people have different views on this, but me and I teach in this church that all Christians are baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's not just for some special Christians. We are all. Uh, in receipt of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is a, the guarantee of all the promises of God that we have not yet received. What a wonderful thing. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 23, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Just the first fruits. There's a fuller harvest to come. But we have received the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groaning in ourselves, waiting, waiting for the adoption to win the redemption of our body. This is an amazing thing to find. The Holy Spirit is our first fruits. 
And if there's a first fruit, that means there's going to be a harvest. And we're waiting for the final application of our full salvation. Salvation, we say, we're saved, in the sense we are saved. But there's an aspect of our salvation which is yet to come. And, and, it's, and it's this flesh and blood. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's this world, it's even heaven, it's even the heavens. It's, it's a new body, a glorified body, and a new creation. That's the final hope of the Christian. That's when the story ends. When we enter into the eternal state. And the full redemption, the full Abrahamic promise. And this is something I want us to really absorb. The full promise to Abraham of salvation is salvation, body and soul. The body to God in terms of salvation is as important as the soul. The body must be redeemed as well as the soul. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says. We are to present, Paul says in Romans 12, our bodies as a living sacrifice. This body is important. It's, it's, it was platonic to say that the soul is, is, the, is the important thing. And don't, you can, don't worry about the body. That's not Christianity. We are, our bodies are to be saved. And that's why heaven is not our final home. Because we are without our glorified bodies in heaven. We are just a soul without a body. It's a temporary, intermediate state awaiting the blessed hope of the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. Christ didn't just die to save a part of us. He died to save all of us, body and soul. Body, soul and spirit, the complete you. The complete you. And if you're a Christian, one day all of you will be fully redeemed, body and soul. Going back to Genesis, and bearing in mind uh, those plots of land that were purchased and which served as an as a, as a earnest expectation of the hope to come. We still have to say then that by the end of Genesis, the hope of the promised land seems more remote than ever. The twelve tribes now, well at least before they were living in Canaan as resident aliens, but now they're not even living in Canaan at all. The twelve tribes by the time we get to the end of Genesis are living in a foreign land altogether outside the borders of Canaan. They're living in Egypt. That doesn't sound like very good progress, does it? And I wonder how many of those Israelites remembered the fact that this was God's plan all along. Uh, in his words recorded to Abraham in chapter 15, it says, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. 
and afterward they shall come up with great substance. So for a long time, um, something like, there's a gap between Abraham's birth and Moses of something like 250 to 300 years. Um, and that was just the birth of Moses. So for a long time, the Abrahamic community had to be content with sojourner status, traveller status in the land of Canaan. They beheld the kingdom from afar and confessed that for the present they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. One day God would deliver them and bring them in triumph into their inheritance. Then the nation would be a kingdom directly under the rule of God in a theocratic kingdom. And that theocratic kingdom, Israel, would be like a new garden of Eden, flowing with milk and honey, the Bible says. And like Eden, it would be God's land, and God would dwell in it. But the Bible says, as yet, the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. And the covenant people must learn to watch and wait and walk by faith and not by sight. Well, that rings a few bells, doesn't it, for us as the Christian church? They, like us, were a pilgrim people. Like us, they had to live as pilgrims and not as people in full possession of the land of Canaan. That would come. That was the to-be. But the now was quite different. And that had consequences of, at all sorts of levels. They were um, resident aliens. They could not live as if they had already come into possession of the land. The scriptures emphasize that there was a big difference between how the covenant people of God lived under the patriarchs and how they lived after they entered into the inheritance of Canaan. And if you read the scriptures carefully, you'll see there's a massive difference. The difference is obvious with respect to many things, but we'll just think of it in terms of politics and religion, two things you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table. Two um, headings where we will highlight the difference. So politics um, is a very general heading. In terms of politics, we notice that there's a great difference in the way the Abrahamic community dealt with the Canaanites whilst they were pilgrims to when they had entered Canaan and they had possessed Canaan. There was a massive difference. How they engaged with the Canaanites. Under Moses, the divine command was given to the armies of Israel to storm the land and to occupy it and to take it for God. The Canaanites were to be shown no mercy and to be utterly destroyed. So the most difficult parts of scripture we read of, of the children and the babies being dashed against the walls. The Canaanites were to be shown no mercy. There were to be no alliances made with the enemy because Israel was now a full functioning theocracy. And in, in typologically, the conditions within the land of Israel foreshadowed 
what life will be like for the people of God in the new heaven and the new earth, where there will be no sin. There will be absolute purity. That's the point. This is the point of the typology. There could be no Canaanite left because in the new heaven and the new earth there can be no sin, no trace of sin. But how different things were with respect to the Canaanites under the patriarchs. With no sign or hint of God disapproving at all, um, the people of God entered into covenants with their neighbours, the Canaanite neighbours, <coughs> the same tribes and nations that they would destroy later on. Obviously another generation. There were covenants made in settlements over access right to wells, water in chapters 21 and 26. Abraham made a covenant with the Amorites and even cemented a military alliance with them in Genesis 14. And instead of fighting the Canaanites, he joined in a covenant with the Canaanites in mutual defence from an outside enemy, an enemy outside the land of Canaan. And Abraham even was concerned that the Amorites had their share of the war bounty. Instead of storming the field of Machpelah, Abraham paid for it. What a difference in how the patriarchs dealt with their neighbours. In Genesis 34, 14 following, when the sons of Jacob plundered the Canaanites because of what happened to Dinah, their sister, Jacob didn't congratulate them, did he? When they plundered the, the Canaanites in revenge. Jacob, their father, was absolutely furious with them. He said, ye have troubled me to stink among the inhabitants of the land. So these things remind us that the patriarchal period was a, what we can call a non-theocratic kingdom. In the same way as the, as we as the church, we are we are not a theocratic kingdom. We are a non-theocratic kingdom. It's an age. It was an age like our age, when common grace was still in operation, and that has implications for how the people of God engage with the world. One day, in the confines of the promised land, common grace would end. Will be suspended. Um, Israel then, in a sense, implemented the day of the Lord. They imp implemented the judgment of God. It was a, a day of divine judgment, the day when the meek inherited the land. It was a time of holy war. It was a time for seizing Canaan in God's name with the high praises of God in their mouth and a two edged sword in their hand. That was a time yet to come, but it was not yet. They couldn't act like the now as they would act then. And this, I think, is a great lesson for us too in the church. The time for that kind of theocratic rule for the church will come. It will come. It will come at the second coming of Christ. But not until then, 
And this is so important for us to get right. Um, one of the biggest problems with some groups today who push certain teachings about the second coming, one of, the, one of their problems is that they haven't really learned to tell the time. Um, telling the time is important. Bringing a watch is also important. But knowing how to use a watch is important. And, and spiritually speaking, learning how to tell the time is, is so important. Putting more technical language, there is a thing. There, there is a thing which we can, which we can call over-realized eschatology, which I need to explain to you. Let me let me explain to you what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Because this is this is a, a real present problem in the, in the church which we're facing currently. First of all, just let me say the time between the first and the second coming of Christ is referred to in the New Testament as the last days. I always wriggle a bit when I hear preachers say, well, I believe we're in the last days. There's no question we're in the last days because the last days began when Jesus came. But the church has always, from the, from the day of Pentecost onwards, we've been in the last days. So that's not anything new. As Christian people, we live in the last days and we already experience aspects of God's kingdom. We experience aspects of them, but they are not fully here yet. Another way, another way of thinking of this is, is, is that the last days, the last things have been inaugurated, they've been kicked off, they've been started, but there's a lot more yet to come. Another way, this is often put, is that we as Christian people are living in the already, but the not yet. A lot of what we experience and preach and, and fellowship around is already here, but a lot of it is not yet. Does that make sense? This creates a tension between the now and the not yet. And much of the error in today's false teaching stems from the failure to tell the time, of understanding what is now and what is yet to come. So when preachers promise blessings that are not yet and they say they are for now, then they are over-realising eschatology. I'll give you some examples so that you understand what I'm saying. Some examples of this are when preachers say, for example, God doesn't want us to be sick. God doesn't want us to be sick. Or perhaps a better way of saying it, a Christian shouldn't be sick. If a Christian was exercising real faith, they wouldn't be ill, they wouldn't be sick. There are many preachers that are saying that. They say if Jesus paid the penalty for sin and sickness is one of the consequences of sin, then believers should not be sick and they are not using faith correctly. Now you will often hear reform types saying, well, no, that's not true because Jesus did not die for our sickness but only for our sin. Well, that's not right either. That's not right either. 
Jesus did die to eradicate all the consequences of sin. The error comes in in over-realising the promise by bringing forward something that is for the not yet into the already, something that is for later, for now. It is true that ultimately the Christian will not be sick and that the cross dealt with our sickness. But that will not come until the eternal state where there is the promise to wipe away every tear from their eyes that death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The, ab the absence of sickness is secured by Christ but that is not for now. That is for that is yet to come in the eternal state. Miraculous physical healing, I'm sure, happens and is possible, but I believe it's rare and not the norm for the people of God. That's an example of over-realized eschatology, and it puts people under great bondage. Because they think, well, it's my fault I'm sick. I'm not exercising faith. Well, one day your sickness will be taken away. But it's not, unless God performs a miracle here on earth, you're going to have to wait. But the promise will come. You may be in a wheelchair, but Brother Curtis, one day, he'll, he'll, be, he'll be flying like an angel in heaven. He'll be going so fast you can hardly see him. You know, so. Whatever physical problem we have will be dealt, but we, we mustn't over-realise the promise. It's that these, these things aren't, aren't all for now. Another example of not telling the time properly is, is the old sinless perfection doctrine taught by John Wesley. This is the teaching that some Christians are able to become so mature in the faith that they no longer sin. Now we will experience sinless perfection. Every single Christian will be without sin and perfect. But that's not now. Mm -hmm. That is when we see him. And when we see him, then we will be like him. More relevant perhaps to our subject tonight. There's a significant number of often reformed, post-millennial reformed groups who are espousing Christian nationalism. Here the focus tends to move away from the gospel to a focus on Christianizing the internal politics of a society or a community. And they spend their time lobbying for law to reflect their view of Christianity and the role of religion in political life. And some of some of the groups would even reintroduce the, the Levitical punishments on adultery, for example. And they would um, they would want Christian symbols and images to be portrayed in the public square. And this is very popular in America and the Christian right. Well the thing is there will come a day there will come a day when, when, when the whole universe will be 
will be Christian. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But, but that, that, that's not now. And we, you know, of all countries, England should know that forcing the kingdom of God through politics doesn't work. We, we, of all countries, we, we gave that a good old go under Cromwell and the Puritans. The Puritans tried it, it didn't work in England. The Purit Puritans tried it in America, it didn't work in America. Theocracy will come, but it belongs to, to the not yet. It doesn't belong to now. And so, the Abrahamic community under the patriarchs teaches a big lesson. They didn't artificially or prematurely force the birth of Israel. They didn't force the premature birth of the theocracy. Instead, they exercised a pilgrim spirit. They had faith and patience in tribulation. They were sojourners in a land they knew their seed would one day possess, but they, they had to learn how to hold on to the promises of God and not to use the flesh and human wisdom to implement them artificially on earth. Oh, I wish, we, I wish the church would understand that today. We see this illustrated in the difference, the difference between the now and the not yet is illustrated in the contrast between how Jacob met with Pharaoh and how Moses met with the Pharaoh of his day, not the same Pharaoh of course. You see, when um, this is Jacob. Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Well, that's what we should, now that's the New Testament church there. That's our relationship to the state. That's our relationship to the equivalent of Pharaoh. We are to pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. But it won't always be like that. There'll come a day when it'll be more like Moses meeting with Pharaoh. Moses called down judgments from heaven upon Pharaoh and his land. And there will be a time when our relationship with the Canaanites will change. We will no longer preach the grace of Christ. We'll no longer call people to salvation. It will be the day of the Lord. It will be the day of the Lord's judgment. But that is not now. That's in the future. Today is the day of the Great Commission. When we pray for those who persecute us and bless those who curse us. It's quite different. also in terms not only of the politics but also of the religion of the worship of the patriarchs before um, they entered into the land of Canaan 
Religion may not be the best term to use, but I'm just using that as a shorthand. The way the people of God experienced God um, under the patriarchs was different, in some ways at least, than the way they experienced God in the theocratic kingdom. Like I said earlier, the theocracy under Moses was essentially a renewal of Eden. It served as a prototype of the, the final theocracy in the new heavens and the new earth. And the main point about Eden, and we tried to emphasise this when I was covering chapters 1, 2 and 3, the main point about Eden was it was there in Eden that the glory of God dwelt. Often in Reformed teaching, is called the glory spirit. In Israel, God's glory presence is restored. And God meets with his people between the wings of the cherubim, which cover the mercy seat. That's why it's a, a replication of Eden. And God fills his temple with his presence, and the tabernacle made the temple with his presence. It's a glorious thing. He filled Eden and he filled Israel, he filled Israel in the tabernacle and the temple. This foreshadows, of course, the final kingdom that we as the church look forward to. When God will so fill the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, with his glory, that we will see, the Bible said, we will see him face to face and his name will be written on our foreheads. And that there will be no night there. And no need for a candle, neither the light of the sun, for the Lord God gives the light and shall reign forever and ever. What a wonderful thing. Um, that's what the theocratic kingdom of Israel typified and foreshadowed and prophesied. In the Old Testament, as we've mentioned before in this series, God appears to his people in the Old Testament in, often in a theophany. Theophany is an appearance of God but more specifically, it is an intense manifestation of the presence of God that is accompanied by an extraordinary visual display. Now, I want to just talk about, because we're running out of time, I want to talk about Theophanies as an illustration of how religion was different under the patriarchs as it was when Israel was formed after the Exodus. Now there are theophanies during the patriarchal period and there are theophanies under the law, under Moses as well. But there are differences and these differences are instructive. Remember that under the patriarchs it was not yet time for the glory spirit of, that was there in Eden yet to come because that was reserved for Israel, the tabernacle and the temple. That was, not for, the, that was for the not yet it wasn't for the time of the patriarchs. And under the patriarchs, 
So under Moses, I should say, at the typical level, at least, the glory presence pertaining in Eden was restored. So the theophanies that appeared in Israel assumed a different form than the theophanies that appeared under the patriarchs. The theophanies that appeared in the theocratic kingdom of Israel assumed the form of the fiery cloud of the glory spirit who, we remember, led the sojourners out of Egypt into their final inheritance. And then the final judgment on the Amorites could then take place. You remember the pillar of cloud that led them by day and the fire by night. The theophany, this was a theophany, this was God appearing to his people in a, in a visual display. And this theophany foreshadows the parousia of the Son of Man, the second coming on the clouds of heaven in the glory of the Father with all the holy angels bringing fire judgment upon the ungodly. The new Jerusalem will come down from heaven. But that is not yet for the church, that is yet to come. But for the patriarchs, the theocracy of Moses also was yet to come. It was not time for the glory yet to appear. That would be later in the kingdom of Israel. And so therefore the theophanies that the patriarchs experienced were theophanies, but they were not with the glory cloud. The glory cloud was absent. That was reserved only for Israel and to the theocratic kingdom. In the days of the patriarchs, the theophanies generally, generally, you can say that word, were in the form of the angel of the Lord. If you read it carefully, this is how God appeared, in the form of the angel of the Lord. So when Jacob summarises his experience of God and the way God communed with him, he says in chapter 48, 15 and 16, and he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, did walk, the God which fed me all my life long, unto this day, the angel, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, blessed the lads. So God, the, the theophany was in the form of the angel. Now the theophany of the angel of the Lord appeared under Moses as well. But the sign of the glory presence was not a feature of the patriarchal period. This is a, a huge error as I can't cover properly tonight. But this is one of the great differences in the religious experiences of the patriarchal people of God and the people of God of the Moses. The mode or the manner of the theophanies. The, the mode under the patriarchs of the angel of the Lord without the awesome splendour of the glory spirit. During the patriarchs, the, the manifestation of the angel of the Lord sometimes was so subtle, so subdued, that you could miss it. Um, that's why, let me put it this way, 
a theophany in, in Israel under the theocratic kingdom, there's no way anyone could miss it. It was a blazing glory. A theophany under the patriarchs you could miss. The angel of the Lord could appear in such a subtle way that it could be missed. We know this. Um, because in Hebrews 13 verse 2, talking about the patriarchs and the manifestation of the angels, it was so subdued and non-spectacular that the patriarchs could entertain angels unawares. Unaware that they had been in the presence of an angel. And we read some of the stories we can, with Abraham meeting the angel at the tent. It wasn't anything spectacular. Very different under Israel. Very spectacular, very noticeable. In Exodus chapter 33, it was the whole concern of Moses that they would not be led by the angel of the Lord without the glory cloud of God's presence. Moses says, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. You see, Moses was someone who had learned to tell the time. He didn't want to turn the clock back to a time of an experience of God that the patriarchs would have known. He didn't want to go back because if, 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 if it was only the angel of the Lord without the glory spirit in, in attendance, then that would be going back to what it was like with the patriarchs. And Moses says, if I, if I presence do, do not come with, do, does not go with us, then do not send us up from you. We didn't want to go back in time. The times are fulfilled, Moses is saying, it's time for the Shekinah presence in glory to be with the people of God. Now today, just applying that a little bit to us, you know, when, we, when we're in the presence of God, in the direct presence of God, now we love preaching, we love prayer, we love the church, um, but you know, when we're in the direct presence of God, when we're in the direct sunlight of God, we're not, going to, we're not going to give a moment's thought to sermons, hymns, all the means of grace. We wouldn't want to go back to that, would we? We'd come in to the full possession. And this is what Moses is saying. I don't want to go back to that. Because you, now the Shekinah glory is with your people. And if, he's not, if the Shekinah is not going to come with us to fight with us, then do not send us up from here. Says, and the angel of scripture says, and the angel of God which went before the camp of Israel removed and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. Well, I'm running out of time. I may need to, uh, to stop, or I do, I do need to stop. Just to briefly say, there was a difference in the theophanies. And the thing that we, um, we read of when we study the rest of Genesis is that every, I think nearly every time there was a theophany, under the, under the patriarchs, there was an altar built. There was an altar built. Um, one example is Bethel. Jacob, Bethel. 
An altar was built when God appears, man, the patriarch, man of God, builds an altar and says, this is where God has met me. This is holy ground. And under the patriarchs there were many altars. Altars here, altars there, all around the place. Where God had met with his people. But you know, in Israel, um, there was no altar built at Shechem, there was no altar built at Bethel. The big difference was that there was now just one altar. God said there will only be one altar. One altar in my tabernacle, ultimately to be one altar in the temple. By faith they foreshadowed the one altar that would come when Israel would possess the inheritance. The altar under Moses was a banner to the nations that Israel was the nation of, of God, that the people of God had come home. That the altars under the patriarchs were signs of faith that the land would come, the promise would come. The land would be sanctified to Yahweh. There would be a cleansing from all sin because this was God's land. It was the holy land. And in God's land there is just one altar. One place of worship, one altar, one temple, one tabernacle. But the message of the patriarchal altar was very different. It was a the altars that Jacob built, Abraham built. They were they were like sermons, weren't they? They were like warnings. They were saying, "Repent! God, God is God is here. God is coming. There's judgment to come. This land of Canaan, which we're now travellers in, we're resident aliens, and one day it's going to be ours." And God is going to call down holy fire and holy judgment. And this land will be taken for God. The day of the Lord is coming. And these altars are a witness that that day is at hand. That's, that's very similar to us, isn't it, in the Christian church today. The time of judgment is not yet. That time will come then. That time of judgment will come. Our job is to give the prophetic warning of judgment to come. The altars under the patriarchs were a summons to repent while there was still time to turn from the worship of the idols and to be reconciled to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And by their public worship and by the godly example of the patriarchs, they were calling the ungodly to the Lord. And they speak, of course, of the day when the gospel of Christ would go forth in the power of the Spirit, when the one and only altar of Calvary would be heard in all the earth. That's our job. That's our job today, is to call people to the altar of Calvary. Judgment is coming, but now, that's not for now, that's for then. Today is the day of grace. Today is the day of the gospel. 
So, dear friends, as much I've missed out and rushed over, but I believe the time of the patriarchs is instructive because they're in the same position as we are, spiritually speaking. But thank God there will come a day when we as the church will be in the same position as Israel were in, in the land of Canaan. We will possess the land. All God's enemies will be destroyed and there will be one king, one altar, and you and I will be there in full possession of our inheritance. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.